Good morning. Hopefully, if you were with us last week, uh, just as Dev was uh, kind of explaining in between her worship sets, you uh, were with us as we looked at the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, the absolutely awe-inspiring and stunning scene of thunder and lightning and the room shaking in his robe filled the uh, room. The seraphim flying about with their six wings, covering their feet, their eyes, and with which they flew, shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we focused on his holiness. And then we jumped to the New Testament, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then we focused on the fact that this holy God became a man. In the incarnation, Jesus the creator the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one to whom the seraphim were singing, according to John chapter 12, verse 41, was the one that emptied himself of his glory, according to Philippians chapter 2, and took upon himself the form of a man being born of the virgin in a manger, being chased from his own uh, fatherly home of Bethlehem into Egypt out of fear for Herod the Great, uh, killing all of the young males his age, being raised in a backwater community of Nazareth in relative obscurity. All of these events, we were describing them as being scandalous. It wasn't what the people of Israel expected from the Anointed One, from their Messiah. And it certainly didn't come along the side of the image of the holiness of God that we saw in Isaiah chapter 6. And yet this is what was required in order for Jesus to achieve salvation for you and I, that we might have our sins forgiven. He had to become the perfect man, according to Paul in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, Jesus is the one that's replacing Adam as far as our heritage. And in so doing, he was willing to go to that cross, to the tree, which was considered a curse for the Jewish people. It made no sense. They struggled to understand it. In fact, to this day, many do not. And yet Paul says that for us as believers, we preach Christ and him crucified. He is the stumbling block for the Jews and it's foolishness for the Gentiles. That word stumbling block in the Greek in the original language we discussed is the word scandalous. Jesus is scandalous. That God could become a man and live like he lived in perfection, without sin, and yet be treated as such by you and by me. It is us, it is our sins that hammered those spikes into his ankles and into his wrists. It is our sin that separated him from the Father. Oh God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus said from the cross. And yet in triumph, he resurrected. And on that first Easter morn, when they go to discover his body to anoint it, they find that he is no longer there. Death has not defeated him. He has risen again. And to that we sing praise and glory. 
so exciting. Well, this morning we're doing part two of this sermon. It's sort of uh, last week's sermons plus one, right? So if you want to follow along, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be focusing on 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. And I'm just going to read through this passage. It's relatively short, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Fairly straightforward passage, and yet so full of meaning. We're going to spend some time here taking a look at this, but as we do so, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I just ask that you would help us as we uh, focus on your word this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would chase away any of those things that we're concerned about in our life as we walked in these doors this morning whether that's financial concerns, health concerns, uh, father, familial concerns, we just pray that you would set those aside so that we can hear fully what you would have for us today. May I be clear, Father. May I be to the point. And I pray, Father, that for our time together this morning that you would help us to become the people that you have called us to be, that you've created us to be. Father, for those of us here who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, I pray that we would be strong in you, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Peter, writing this epistle to the church, to the people that are a mix of Jews and Gentiles, I believe, uh, is telling us how to live this life. Last week, we talked about how God is holy and how we need to be scandalous in our approach to our family and our friends, doing things that are unexpected because of the new life that we have within us. Peter today is going to focus us a little sharper, uh, help us to get our minds set in the right way on how this is done. This passage in verse 13, you might be tempted to think that we're looking at a couple of imperatives here, a couple of commands uh, that, in fact, is the way that the New International Version has it. So if you're reading in the NIV this morning, you would be reading, therefore, prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. It's a command. But in fact, grammatically, that is not the case. These are two participles based upon the imperative that comes a little bit further down when he says, set your hope fully on the grace. That is the command in this first part of this section. Set your hope. When Peter is writing that this is something that you should be doing, this should be our focus. As always, in the Greek, and as the writers of the New Testament put it, the indicative always precedes the imperative. Who you are, the indicative, has to be followed by the command to do something, the imperative. So let's take a look at what he says in the imperative before we jump into those participles. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a totally different mindset. I confess that after the end of last week's sermon, you may have walked out of here saying, oh, I have to be holy. 
I want to be a righteous person. That is what Dave is calling us to. I, I need to set aside those sins, and that is true. But if you left here and you thought, oh, I'm going to stop lying, I'm going to stop looking at pornography, I'm going to treat my wife better, my children better, and all these kind of things, and you had a long list, uh, you, you're, you're not going about it in the right way. You see, the truth is, according to Scripture, is that you've already been made into a holy person. You are righteous because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Yes, he wants us to participate in that, but you cannot do righteousness in your own strength. The Old Testament, if nothing else, is a lesson to that truth. The Jewish children of God trying to be fulfillers of the covenant that God created with Israel over and over again had to repent and live their lives trying to be righteous, doing all the things that the law of Moses required of them, not just the Ten Commandments, but the some 600 different aspects of the law of Moses required, and they failed over and over again. And then they would have to repent. They would probably have to experience judgment before they began that cycle of repentance. And they would do this over again. The, the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Malachi is nothing but the same tale. The law identifies sin. You and I know when we do something that is wrong, but it doesn't stop it. When we get to the New Testament, something marvelous has happened. Because we are inheritors of the promise of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1, because we've been adopted into a new family and sealed by the Holy Spirit, that battle has already been won. We are not seeking, we are not seeking in our own strength to be righteous people. We are merely learning to walk in the truth of what has already been won for us. That's why Peter says this. Let's read it again. Set your hope fully on what? On the grace. You see, without that grace concept, it becomes a works righteousness. We do what so many people seek out to do by saying, I belong in God's family. I deserve to go to heaven because I'm actually working on being a good person. I try to do my best. And typically by that, we mean, well, uh, I'm, I'm not doing anything majorly wrong. I, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm, I'm not a thief. I'm, I, I'm trying to give to charities. I'm trying to come alongside my neighbor and help out when they are in need and so forth. And all those things are great. But that's not what the Word of God is asking you to do. Peter says, set your hope. That word hope is a powerful term in the New Testament. It is that of which we are supposed to focus everything that makes us us onto one single point. Set your hope. This is what we have hope in. This is what we're trusting is going to be true of us. On what? On the grace, that which is undeserved favor, a gift given to us. It would be like saying to a child, I don't want you to go out and create a birthday gift for yourself. You don't have to worry about saving your money and going to the store and looking at all the different things that you could purchase. 
and then taking it home and wrapping it and putting it somewhere and then acting like you're surprised when you get it. No, it's all been done for you. You can't achieve this on your own. It has been done for you. When Jesus went to that cross, he took all of your sin, past, present, and future with him, and it was paid for. When you respond to the love of God and you give your life fully to Christ, you've set your hope on the grace, on that gift that we brought to you. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. It's a subtle but yet monumental shift in how you try to be holy and how you try to be righteous. Now, understanding that, we look at the two participles at the beginning of this verse. Peter seems to be explaining to us how to help you in this process. He says, first of all, preparing, bringing out that participial understanding, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. He wants you to understand your salvation. He wants you to understand what Christ has done for you and prepare your minds. Get them in the right order. Well, how do we do that? As believers, we should be routinely doing things that are preparing our minds. I, I talked about last week the necessity of being in God's Word on a regular basis. I can't remember if I shared this, but there was a time when uh, my older church in Nebraska, we had a group of men that got together, accountability groups. They were huge in the 90s, right? Certain Christian leaders came out really putting those forth. You should be in an accountability group. And those were very strong and maybe still are even today. Uh, but in our group, we had like five guys. And we decided that we were going to come up with five disciplines, spiritual disciplines that we wanted to practice every week. If we failed when we got together on our regular meeting day, which I think was Friday mornings, we had to pay a dollar into the kitty for everyone that we messed up. Now these were pastors, laymen, just motivated people. They wanted to be together. They wanted to do this. And yet you would have thought that every man had brought his attorney when we got to Friday morning. <laughs> you were gonna run on your treadmill every day. Well, you have to understand the treadmill didn't work, my, my ankle was hurting, you know, I don't need, to, it's just a dollar. But you know, we just had these arguments, pretty soon it turned into be like 20 minute discussions for each guy as to why they hadn't fulfilled their accountability uh, requirements. But one young man, a guy that I had discipled was in there. He was married now, been through college, I loved him. And he said, well, I want to be held accountable to be in the Word on a regular basis. And I was like, great, that's awesome, love it. So since it has to be measurable, how often are you going to be in the Word? He goes, well, let's not get too excited here. He says, I'm going to just start off slow. I, once a week. Once a week? What? You brush your teeth more often than that. What do you mean once a week? Or maybe you don't, I don't know. But once a week? <laughs> and all of us at the table had the same response. I'm a little ashamed of that now. Because even though I thought it was kind of funny at the beginning, uh, back then, <coughs> I recognized that's where he was. 
And he was being honest with us. And so that's where he started, once a week. I don't care where you're at this morning. Maybe you're at the level where you're reading the daily bread and you read a verse or two, you read a little uh, paragraph on what it means and you're good. Some of you are in the Bible reading plan that Doug Fern mentioned last time. That's great. But I'm telling you this, the amount of time you spend in the word, getting to know Jesus Christ, getting to know what he intended for you, the depth of your Bible study, well, without exception, show the depth of your spiritual maturity. Preparing your minds? Yeah, get into the Word of God. Understand it. As I said last week, there is no other way to know what God wants for you and how you're supposed to achieve it than by being in this Bible. You can listen to pastors and podcasts and read things, all good, but there's something about opening the Word of God and having confidence as you read it that you know what it is saying or at least being willing to do the work to dig it out of there so that you can have some answers to your questions as you prepare, preparing your mind. And just in the minutes and hopefully uh, half hours that that takes for you to do that means that your mind is slowly refocused from the things of the world to the things of God. And you will find yourself going throughout your day thinking about what you learned that morning. Or maybe you're doing this at night before you go to bed, it doesn't matter. But be in the word of God. Secondly, besides that, I would say, if you're struggling with an area of holiness and you just can't seem to get a handle on it, uh, go to a wiser person, somebody older in the Lord than you, and ask for prayer. Ask someone to just be a prayer warrior for you. There is such power in prayer. It's not someone just talking out loud in a pious way. It is somebody who understands who God is and they have a direct antenna to him. In our family, I've said this before, but my wife is a prayer warrior. If I'm sick, if I'm worried, if I'm distressed, if I'm angry, and I need help, I just tell my wife. Everybody in our family knows that. Tell I own. She takes it up to the Father. I don't know why that's true. It shouldn't be. I'm much more spiritual than her. But <laughs> it is the case. She has that direct line to the Father. Love it. Iona and I were at a conference back in our early ministry and in this church that we were in, it was really a struggle financially, week to week to week. We were in a situation where if God didn't do something miraculous almost every month, we couldn't make it. We just lived in a poor community. There's a difference between living in a poor community and being poor versus being in a rich community and being poor. And I was in a poor community and we were poor. And the stress of it was getting to me. I, I was getting very dissatisfied, thinking there's got to be a better way. There has to be maybe another church out there, another faith community that I could be part of. I was ready to give up, and yet God was doing some amazing things in our ministry there with young people. And we went to this conference. We got it paid for. It was a blessing in Chicago. And one of my good friends was leading this on Freedom in Christ, Dave Park. And 
on one of the mornings, he came up behind Iona and I, really without much warning, we haven't really talked to him much, and he just asked, may I pray for you two? And we said, sure. And he put his hands on us and he prayed. And his prayer was so focused on us finding financial freedom, learning to trust the Father for his provision. I, I can't describe it to you. Uh, it was like somebody was pumping health into my heart. I felt the Holy Spirit. I've been prayed for many times, but that day, it moved me. It gave me confidence. It made me realize that this wasn't by chance that we were going through this. This wasn't circumstance. This was God's direction. He was going to use that to do something maybe for us, maybe for others, through that time. And that prayer was so necessary. So be in the Word of God. Ask others to pray for you. Those things are so important. Be in a group. Be in a group of people that are mature in Christ. Community group, Bible study, whatever it is. And be honest with them. Preparing your mind, saying, I, have, I, I I'm, should be older in Christ than I'm acting. I still struggle with losing my temper. I still struggle with lustful thoughts. I still struggle and you just go down the line. As a young man, as a new believer, I was in high school and I took it upon myself to finally go into my pastor who eventually would become my father-in-law. And I said, Pastor Trim, I'm really struggling with lust. And I didn't know what he was going to say. This was an old Bob Jones University grad. He was a man of great dignity. I thought that he would probably look at me with disgust and set me straight. I kind of felt like I needed that. But instead, he just pushed back from his desk and he laughed. And he says, well, Dave, welcome to the club. <laughs> what? You struggle with this too? Absolutely. You see, you need a group of people in your life who will walk that walk with you, preparing your minds. That's what Peter's saying. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Have others praying for you. Be with believers. This is not an individual battle. You have to be in community. You have to be with a group that knows you and understands you and that you feel that you can be real with. The second participle there is be sober-minded. Sounds like an imperative, but he's just saying this is the result of you setting your hope on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be, think rightly is what he's saying. Think about your situation and put it in perspective. Once we understand who we are in Christ, we're not acting like the Old Testament people any longer. We're not in battle to overcome certain sins. We're resting in who we are in Christ. Be sober-minded. Think about who you are. I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when I'm so close to doing something that I know is sinful, and I feel like it's a temptation, and it's getting to me. And then I stop and think about who I am in Christ. What am I doing? This is so dumb. Often that happens when I'm being snarky when I'm having a fight with my wife or I'm 
wanting to judge someone else who has made me upset, and I stop and I think, no. God's commanded me to love them, not if they do this, not if they do that, but just to love them, to be like Christ. Christ has forgiven me. I've done much worse. Christ doesn't judge me. So who am I? See, right there, I'm just walking through the process of understanding who I am in Christ. You have to be honest with yourself. So we're preparing our minds for action. By the way, I love that ending part there, for action. What action? We're not working towards our salvation. That's already been achieved for us by Jesus. So when he says preparing your minds for action, that means that you're preparing yourself to be used by God to do something that only he could have you do. A ministry, reaching out to others. You know, what terrifies you about living the Christian life? Sharing your faith with your neighbor? Living out your convictions in front of your family? Whatever it is, prepare your minds and then you'll be ready for action is basically what Peter is saying. Be sober-minded. So those two participles follow fully upon the imperative of set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's jump on down, verse 14. As obedient children, I love the fact that Peter is making that assumption, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is a common theme in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Moses, writing in the uh, book of Exodus, and especially in Leviticus, is telling the children of Israel, do not live like you once lived among the Egyptians. In other words, the Egyptians had their culture. They were godless. They, they practiced sorcery, divinity. They were into all kinds of pagan rituals. Don't live like them. And, he said, Moses to his children, do not live like the Canaanites that we're gonna go and take their land. We don't want you to follow their practices. One of my professors at uh, college uh, was a studier of ancient cultures and he had been doing some translation of ancient Canaanite cuneiform, uh, the runic tablets, and he said that he was doing this late at night and the things that he was translating as far as their ritual practices, things that they would do in honor of their pagan gods, he said it was so dark, so absolutely frightening. He felt such oppression coming down on him. This is the culture that they were going to penetrate with their covenant relationship with Yahweh and take their lands, their homes, but God's saying, don't take their culture. That doesn't belong to you. And it became a constant battle for the children of Israel to remember that. And unfortunately, they gave way to that anyway. The world's attractive. The sensual pleasures of living in the United States are many. You don't have to live in a pagan culture in order to lose sight of who you're supposed to be in Christ. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Step away from it. What's your new identity? If you were to take a piece of paper and write a list, okay, on the left side, here are the things that characterized Dave Foster's life or your life before you became a Christian. 
Man, I, I can make a long list. Now, on this side, write down the things that characterize your life now that you walk with Christ. You contrast those. Once I was beset with lust, now I look at women as creations of God to be honored, to be raised up. One time I struggled with anger. I hated people. I don't know how many times I was kicked out of school and it wasn't just because I was being a brat kid. I really hated people. Now, I love people with the love of Christ. And you can just go down your list and you can mark those areas in which you have not necessarily been consistent in living the way that Christ would have you live. That's what Peter's saying. As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the way that you are. That is said over and over again. Paul says the same thing. We once lived this way as Gentiles, as, as people who were not redeemed, but now let's live this way. Don't be caught up in your former lusts and pleasures. Live this way. It's a constant change. And the truth is that in the Christian body, in a church, we're all at different phases of that walk, right? Some of us are brand new believers. And we're not even aware yet of some of the things that we're practicing that are really offensive to God. And we're just not there. And there, there are others who have been walking with Christ since their young age, and they're now in their 70s, and they're doing it fairly successfully well. The sad ones are the ones that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who've been in Christ for 30, 40, 50 years, who are still living like the ones that are just newly believers. They have never matured in Christ. They have never stepped out in faith to walk with him. They don't understand who they are. They have never set their hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ, and it's evident. The old man. Sometimes we get caught up in that, and, it, and unfortunately, we don't understand it theologically, and so there becomes a crutch. Uh, an excuse for me to live the way I used to live. Oh, that old man's got a hold of me. Paul loves to use that phrase, the old man, you know, uh, Romans 6, 6, a couple places in Ephesians, Colossians. He'll say, you know, put the old man aside. The old man is dead. And yet when we sin, sometimes we'll say, well, that old man got a hold of me. No. Theologically, Paul is saying, that's part of who you were. The old man is very rarely, in Paul's theology, an individual person. It's a collective now. That is part of the family of Adam, of fallenness. You're a new believer. You're in Christ. You've been redeemed. You're a new citizen. All those things that happen to you when you become a believer, you're now a new person in Christ. If you act like you used to act, you obviously are sinning, but you're not a sinner. You're redeemed. You're holy. It's hard to bear that sometimes. We think, well, I, I, I fall way short of that. Well, don't we all? We are a new person in Christ. Set your hope on that, right? And then Peter goes to Leviticus. 
And he tells us, be holy. He's calling up phrases or verses from the Old Testament that most of the people that are listening to this probably have heard. But he is saying, but as he who called you is holy, who called you? Well, Jesus Christ obviously called me. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Book of Leviticus. It's mentioned some five times, that same phrase. Be holy as I am holy. Now the problem for the children of Israel yet is that Christ hadn't died on the cross and there is no new regeneration in him. There's no new citizenship. So it was almost an impossible task. You could even argue that all that uh, Moses meant by this phrase was that they at least followed the dictates of the sacrificial system, that when they did sin, when they needed to get atonement, they would bring that turtle dove, that lamb, whatever, into the tabernacle and then later the temple, and it would be sacrificed in a partial or temporary looking forward type way for their atonement. But now that we live on this side of the cross, Peter is able to say with much confidence, you shall be holy for I am holy. You are holy in Christ. Live like it. Act like it. Believe it. Even when you mess up. Even when we don't do what we know we should be doing. You're still holy because of the infusion of holiness to you from the Son because of what he did on the cross. It's as simple as that. The old man has been done away with. It is separated from you. You are a new creation in Christ. The Puritan writers, the early church fathers worked on this in so many different ways. We had early Christians, not later than three to 400 AD, living out in the desert, living a life of a hermit, trying in some way to tamper down the lust of the flesh. If I just deny myself human companionship, rich foods, my eyes, the pleasure of looking at beautiful things in this world, then I can be holy. That's not what they're saying. No one mixed it up more in the world than Paul and Peter, right? They took their message of the gospel right to the city of Rome, and they proclaimed it. The expectation is that you and I will not somehow become holy citadels, separated from the world, but that we will walk with our fellow people who are lost, demonstrating to them that we are new people in Christ. We are holy, whether we are new in our faith or whether we are old in our faith. Till the day we die, that is our great commission. Walk with Christ. It is my hope though, as you look at this and you read it, you are gaining confidence and strength to think of yourself in the proper way that God has created you that Jesus has won for you a new life. You will be holy. The day will come, all of us will do this, except for one generation, we will experience death. And when we are resurrected into the presence of God, I believe we will be perfect. 
But until that moment happens, we are going to struggle with our own unrighteousness. We're going to struggle with sin. But understand, we can do some things. Prepare your mind. Get in the Word. Get in prayer. Get in community. Do those things that you need to do to be real in your faith. Right? Be sober-minded. Think properly about who you are. Be willing to forgive each other. Forgiveness is one of those cardinal actions that most people in the church would say yes to, but very few do. We have to learn to forgive one another. We're all at a different phase of this. We need to bear one another's burdens. Be holy as Jesus is holy. That's the goal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I ask, Father, that we would walk in you. Help us to be students of your word, Lord. I don't know for these people what gets in the way of their time in the, in the word. It could be a lack of confidence. It could be that they've never done it, and so therefore they don't have the right hard attitude towards it. It might be too boring, too hard, too difficult, whatever it is. Lord, take away those untruths and replace them instead with an amazing experience of being in your word. I pray, Father, for the ministry of prayer, that you would help us to pray with and for each other. Father, I need prayer. I need it all the time. Thank you for the powerful people, the people that have a direct connection with you that are praying. And I thank you for the opportunities I have to pray with others. And Father, I thank you for the community of this church. I thank you for the people that walk alongside of me and that I can help in my own way. I praise you, Father, for just the love of your people. And as we see the failures and imperfections in each other, we have to learn to forgive and to move on and recognize, Father, that we are one body because we serve one Lord in the power of one spirit. We are your church. May we be faithfully set on that course, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.